this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You know, it's funny how little decisions start to become a big deal given momentum and time. You know, those little decisions about products we started or divisions or areas that we got into that we thought, oh, we'll just test. But ultimately, the tests become permanent and the permanents become infrastructure. And after time, we're in businesses and product lines and service lines, which we really have no business being in. And the revenue coming in has been great. The cash flow has been positive. And why change what's not broken is a question that many of us have asked right up until this pandemic. But now is an opportunity for you to really think about those decisions and unwind some of those things that perhaps you did just to chase revenue or perhaps as a, on a whim or as a reaction that you never would have done in hindsight. Now is the time to think about your business and what really drives the value of it. How someone from the outside, an acquirer, would look at your company. And that's exactly what we do at the Value Builder System. Go to valuebuilder.com. You'll see a questionnaire there. You can take and it will show you how an acquirer would look at your company, giving you a rating on the eight factors acquirers care about most. We can also connect you directly to a certified value builder. Just go to valuebuilder.com. So when they finally come up for the treatment for COVID-19 or some sort of vaccine, there's going to be an enormous incentive for counterfeiters around the world to steal the technology and pawn fake products off people all over the world. My next guest, Aro Ohanian, had a company designed to defend against counterfeiters. They basically put special barcodes in drugs and other consumer packaged goods that allowed company manufacturers and their distribution partners to identify counterfeit products. It's a cool business. And Aro does a great job of demystifying it, making it something that I could understand. I'm sure you'll be able to understand too. In this amazing interview, he talks really candidly about the things he did when he took over Systec. In particular, two things that really changed the course of the company for the better. He talks a little bit about how the role of a CEO and founder can work uh, in harmony together, even if a private equity group is involved. He talks about how he positioned Systec to be acquired and went after new markets in what I thought was a beautiful analogy of marriage and the precursor to marriage being a dating or hot and heavy romance and how to kind of convert that into a formal marriage. Uh, a wonderful wide-ranging interview that I think you're really going to like. He gets into valuation details and, and metrics that you can use and compares metrics for consulting revenue with uh, licensing revenue, with maintenance revenue, uh, SaaS revenue, lots of different benchmarks. Here to tell you the entire story is Ara Ohanian. Aro Hyan, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. Systech, tell me about this company, and I'd love for you to describe what you guys do in, in layman's terms, so, so I can sort of visualize it um, for myself. Absolutely. So think of Systech as something that uh, uh, you see every day 
in your uh, uh, medicine cabinet. Every time you take a, a medicine and you look, there's a barcode on the packaging. That barcode has a unique identifier with it. And that unique identifier is there so that for any reason, if there's a need for recall, uh, um, the manufacturing and the FDA would know where these products are and they can recall the ones that they need to. So that's where the unique identifier comes. And there's also a little, in some of the medicines that you may have at your disposal, uh, from some of the larger names that you would see out there, there it might be a J&J product, it might be a Merck product. There might be an invisible little stamp in that barcode that uh, makes it impossible to reproduce that barcode and that packaging. As a result, it's an anti-counterfeiting measure. And as you know, there are a lot of counterfeit products in the market to advert people. So uh, what Systec does, it makes sure that we know where the products are, the unique ones, so you can recall them, and we can make sure they're authentic so there is no fake that actually infiltrates uh, into the supply chain. Okay, so my bottle of Tylenol has a, a code on the back, and I get, I get that, and there may be an invisible code that avoids, uh, stops counterfeiting. How, how does, why isn't it the drug manufacturer's responsibility to manage that? Like, why does Systec need to exist? Why wouldn't Johnson & Johnson or whoever makes Tylenol do that? Absolutely. Well, uh, Johnson Johnson and Merck and so on are all clients of Systec, right? So Systec is, a, is an expert uh, technologies that provides these companies the ability to secure their product. And then these companies can then tell the FDA who are compliant with the FDA rules of making sure that our products are serialized so that in case of a recall, we know exactly how to go in the supply chain and recall and take the batches we need to bring back. So knowing where is what. So, uh, I see. so there's a, a bad yeah. batch of, of whatever in Denver, Colorado, there's some, some product that was mislabeled, like whatever. We've identified it was a bad batch. We got to recall that. So they don't recall every bottle of Tylenol across the world. They just recall the stuff in Denver, which was exactly. in whatever way compromised. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, and uh, the FDA in the US and uh, Canada and Europe have their own, uh, equivalent typically will have a regulatory compliance uh, for doing this so that they know that if there's a bad product in the marketplace, they can immediately take it out so people aren't endangered. Very cool. Well, I, but I'm really interested as to why these drug manufacturers don't do this, like why they need an independent third-party company they license or, or subscribe to. Why would, I would have thought they, again, I, I'm, I don't know the pharma industry at all, but I would have thought they would have done this themselves. Why, what's the benefit of outsourcing this to a Systec? It's, it's mostly because it's a very specialized thing, to, just to, in layman's term, to uh, let you know what, what the product looks like, right? So when Systec goes into a, uh, uh, a factory, a manufacturing plant of a, of a pharmaceutical company, actually they, they do more than pharmaceutical, they also do vaping products like jewels and uh, also uh, personal care products and cosmetic products. But when Systec goes in, there's a, a camera that goes on the line that Systec puts, and there's a little brain behind the camera that's able to snap up to a few thousand uh, pictures uh, a minute as products are passing through the assembly line. So every time a product passes through the assembly line, typically there's a 
barcode that's printed on it. And then that barcode has to be recorded. And rapidly, you need to put a alphanumeric number associated with that barcode and that package so it becomes unique. So you know, now you know that you have a unique product that you can tra then track and trace. That specialization is well beyond what a uh, um, pharma company does, right? So it's a uh, uh, it's both uh, uh, visual technologies, the ability to rapidly capture images, store these images, turn these images into alphanumeric uh, uh, identifiers, and then be able to manage all of that globally through the supply chain so that you know exactly how to trace that product as it travels across the world. So when you look at all this, this is not a competence that typically manufacturing companies have. It's really a technological component that combines both software and visual tracking technology. That makes sense. So you, you've actually got these cameras that you install in these, these drug manufacturers' places of business, the manufacturing plants. Absolutely. They'll be right either in their uh, direct plants on the assembly line where they package the products. At the minute the product gets either a label on it or goes into a little uh, 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 box. Uh, typically, a barcode is also assigned to that particular packaging, and then that's where we start taking a picture and storing that data. The sales cycle for this must be enormous. Like, how long does it take to sell uh, a, a drug manufacturer this is tech product? You know, it's interesting. From one perspective, it's a fairly uh, a co complex product it looks like and, and it is very sophisticated more than complex but um, at the same time because it follows uh, regulation and compliance when uh, the government comes up with a new regulation and whether it's a pharma company or tobacco company or a spirit company needs to adhere to it they typically have a very specific deadline by which they need to adhere hmm. to that so You'll have a few companies, Latsystic, immediately update their solutions to be able to help companies comply to this regulation. And as a result, your sales cycle depends on the pressure that the government puts in. So occasionally you'll know about something two years in advance. So you start two years in advance talking to your customer and planning with them. In some cases, when it's a immediate response to a crisis, as we are in one now, as you can imagine, uh, then all of a sudden the time frame really gets uh, 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 contracted considerably. So in the event that we were uh, to identify a vaccine or a drug regime that treated COVID-19, presumably that would impact Sistec on some level. Like how would that, how would um, you guys... Well, assuming that, that uh, uh, you know, one of Sistec has about, uh, has the top 20 pharma players in the world as a customer, and then probably another 300 pharma companies around the world of different size and also contract manufacturers in pharma uh, as customers. Assuming that the uh, uh, um, a vaccine that needs to be created and distributed either is one of those companies that's a Sistec customer or a manufacturing, a contract and manufacturer that may be using Sistec technology today for other products they do, then typically uh, uh, Sistec will end up having a, an important uh, part of that, not only in serializing, giving a unique serial number to each product made, but in this case, one of the fear also is, will there be an infiltration of uh, uh, fake products by uh, uh, 
counterfeiters in the marketplace. And that, you know, and that, that becomes a big issue because when fake vaccines right. get into the marketplace, uh, uh, people die. And for instance, Systex has been helping a number of customers with vaccines uh, around and product, um, medication around malaria around the world for many many years and, uh, and and those become important so it's not only knowing what the product is where it is but also be able to create some kind of technology that says we know it's the real one and do you have direct competitors that basically do exactly what you guys do um, typically this is where i think systec was somewhat uh, fortunate uh, if you look at the world uh, there, there are two pieces of this one piece is just the serialization, which is putting a unique serial number associated to barcode. For that, there's a number of companies in the world that do that. And uh, uh, so it's, it's not that there's that many, but you know, there's four or five companies that you often will see in the, uh, uh, in the pharmaceutical. And then there may be four or five companies that are more active in, uh, in the food and beverage. So there, from that perspective, there are solutions that do that. Once you get into the arena of counterfeiting and anti-counterfeiting technologies, this is where things change drastically because the world has developed all kinds of analog anti-counterfeit technologies over the years. It may be a, that little shiny uh, uh, sticker you see on a Microsoft uh, product it was this hologram mm -hmm. sticker. It might be invisible ink. Uh, it might be infrared ink. Uh, it might be a little marking on the packaging. There are all kinds of things that physically are taking care of that but uh, um, one of the issues is that the counterfeiters uh, in the marketplace have become more sophisticated than those who are protecting these products and the counterfeiters have moved to digital solutions so they rapidly put digital plants reproduce a product and by the time uh, interpol gets there they're okay to vacate and abandon a particular hmm. factory because their profits are so high and they, i think the the last term was uh uh, making counterfeit uh, uh, medicine or or booze or so on was four times more profitable than uh, uh, narcotic selling. So you could see how wow. uh, how lucrative. And there is no direct criminality for it, right? Because there's a company in between. So um, on the digital side, there's very few technologies today uh, that are viable. And uh, one of the things about Systec had created a product protected by multiple patents that is able to look at the little piece of printed uh, uh, barcode, that uh, ink that touches the, uh, uh, the cardboard or, or the label and has a, way, has a, a sing, single way of finding out which one are we looking at, so that no two are the same. In fact, Mother Nature in the printing of ink on paper doesn't produce twice the same thing unless it does it four quadrillion times. So the one four quadrillion time, there's a chance it might be identical. So as you could see, the chances of duplicating that are very difficult. So uh, in a way, Systec was quite fortunate that its scientists come up with something. Uh, in fact, when they developed it, they didn't develop it as a product. They developed it as a way to help the cameras see noise. Whatever was different between one uh, uh, barcode passing at 100, uh, uh, yards a second on an assembly line versus another. Assembly Those line. noise made it difficult to take a picture. So they took the noise out so they can do it rapidly. And that noise is actually the unique, uh, call it uh, uh, 
uh, differences that Mother Nature puts inside of that printing process. And he captured that and then patented that, that process. It's just incredible. I mean, I've, I've been doing this show for uh, years now, four years, and I never cease to be amazed at, at, at all of the businesses out there and the technology and all of the layers of the economy. I think it's fascinating. Okay, so I'm, you've succeeded in taking an idiot, someone who knows nothing about the pharma, pharma business, and <laughs> I think educating me about what you guys did and do, which is fantastic and a feat unto itself. So let's talk about how you got to SysTech. What was your journey? Because you didn't start the company, as I understand it. You arrived there a couple of years ago. Tell me about that. That's correct. Although my background was that of an entrepreneur, I started two companies before I started running other people's companies. In this case, it was a 30-year-old company, was doing well. It was in a single industry that was pharmaceutical, a very brilliant founder who 30-year ran the company and an engineer. And most uh, uh, key people within the company with an engineering background as well. And both the founder and uh, his investors decided at some point that if they were to bring someone that had had some experience in taking a company to the next level, and I'll explain what that means, next level of value, uh, and also had experience in uh, emerging in M&A and in exiting a company into uh, another that, that that was the right place to go for Systech because it had a tremendous base of uh, success, tremendous technology, and they felt by being uh, um, somewhat smaller, in this case it was a uh, uh, under $100 million company, uh, they were not able to really scale their solution everywhere that it should be around the world. So that was, so I was brought in to uh, help take the company to its next level of a value and opportunity. And at that time, it's generating less than $100 million in revenue. How many employees did you have, Ballpark? Uh, there were, uh, I think they were uh, total with uh, directly, I think, just around 200, and possibly there were another 100 contractors around the world that worked with the company. So but direct about 200 people. How did you first meet the founder? And maybe describe that initial um, meeting. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that, that was the most nervous moment because having had been a founder three times myself of companies that I then exited, uh, had somebody come and told me that I'm going to be taking your job and do something for you, uh, felt a little bit uh, uh, uncomfortable. But uh, the minute I met the founder, it was very clear that uh, he wanted his company to go beyond what he had done. And as a founder for 30 years, he, he when, when we met, we met at a, uh, at a uh, uh, business club in Manhattan. Uh, I arrived early. He was there sitting at the bar, and both of us uh, introduced ourselves and had a beer at lunch, which was unusual already. Most people only had water at lunch. So uh, we had good chemistry. And during that time, he explained to me how he really thought that his company and the, what he had built had so much potential but that uh, he had been as an engineer and as a person focused on building this had not necessarily d developed all of the experiences of really taking this, what he had built into new uh, uh, territories, whether those territories were geographic or whether they were new verticals. And that's, that was, uh, so his dream was for his company to be able to do greater beyond himself 
And I was one of the candidates that uh, he interviewed. He still owned 30% of the company and was on the board of the company during that time. So, uh, uh, you know, it was important for him uh, to uh, uh, be part of, he was leading uh, some of the decisions on the selection of who would uh, step in his shoes. You know, we talk about this this notion of on this show quite a bit where private equity comes in, they buy in a majority recapitalization, the majority of shares from a founder, but last the founder to hold and carry some shares. And then the founder gets the, you know, air quotes, second bite of the apple if it's a success down the road. So that sounds like what the proposition was here. It was a private equity backed company. The founder was carrying some equity and wanted to have a, 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 an exit at some point, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what was the time frame you were given as it relates to when that exit would, would come to fruition? Um, did they say the, we want? Yes, they, they, they did. Uh, when uh, I'll, I'll, from day one interviewing the, uh, uh, the investors uh, behind the company said that they'd already been invested, invested in that company for quite a while. Some of them were there for 20 years. And, uh, and this was an unusual set of investors and private equity that had taken a much longer view because they really believed in the technology and where it could be and that it hadn't seen its day yet. So they had gone beyond what the typical uh, um, time frame of a private equity investor was. Um, but in this case, they, they had reset the clock and they said that we, they wanted within three to five years to be able to put the company on a new path of either liquidity meaning whether that would be an IPO for the company uh, or an exit into a larger uh, company that can really scale that product forward. So it was a three to five year window. Fantastic. So you get the job as the CEO. What next? What did you start to do? It sounded like you, you fairly quickly had a sort of a strategic discussion among the team as to how to position a company for an exit to maybe describe uh, yeah, that. I, I think you know there were a few things and i can take you from probably four or five things i can take you through and please interrupt me if i go a little bit too long on any of one of them but, but the, fir the first one and most important is the people um, when you come into as into a company that's been there uh, for 30 years with the same founder ceo and over the past few years, the investors had tried to hire management around to help the CEO take the company to the uh, next level, but had had a lot of turnover. It hadn't worked, so they let some of these senior people go. So the SVP, the uh, COO kind of roles had changed. Uh, one of the things happened is that the, the rest of the employees, uh, it's natural to get nervous and uh, to start losing belief, right, faith in in whether uh, you know this is going to work. So my, my first thing was to make sure that uh, I get those individuals who've taken the company to where they were, because these were brilliant, they're brilliant. Uh, scientists, engineers, uh, uh, process-oriented people who made this complex solution work, uh, to get them feel that they are there's a new opportunity, they are part of it, their thinking and their vision is going to be an integral part of the planning upfront and give them an opportunity for those who are excited to really show they're excited and they have new ideas at the same time to identify those that perhaps have uh, lost that spark and to see whether that spark can be reignited uh, or perhaps it is better to uh, not count on them anymore uh, so that was the first thing the people the talent side I and make I sure wanna... you have the right morale 
All right, I want to I follow up there because it sounds like my words, not yours. The, the CEO, it, or the, excuse me, the founder was, was probably what a lot of visionary founders are, which can be a difficult person to work for. Uh, because they have just very strong passions and they're, they're, they're not necessarily uh, steeped in management technique. Again, those are my words, but I'm just reading between the lines given the turnover at the senior level that the company had before you came. Yeah, I, I, in this case, actually, the, the, the founder was, uh, uh, from, from, from what I saw, uh, uh, a good manager, beloved, uh, followed, but uh, over the past two, three years, or let's say four years before arrived, uh, the board and the founder together in trying to take the company to the next level uh, decided to hire uh, um, uh, a level of, of professional management between the founder and the employees. So that could have been a CEO, COO, uh, uh, a new chief financial officer or a new marketing person and so on like this to try to bring more professional management around the founder. And, uh, and in the process, it's not an easy thing to do. And so there was some turnover around making that happen. And I wasn't there at the time, but what really happened at some point, the board, including founders, said, look, we've tried a few times. This hasn't worked well. Uh, and uh, and we're, we're causing the company to uh, uh, some potentially even some more morale issues and so on. And they decided that, rather than try to create a, a, a layer between the founder and the rest of the employees and the organization, it would be better if the founder uh, um, agrees that it makes sense to bring uh, a professional CEO to come and help him realize his vision. And I think so, so a slight nuance, but uh, uh, because uh, it was the, um, the, the turnover of, of that new management at the top that, I think started causing a little bit of issue in morale because when you don't, when your boss changes all the time over three years, everybody gets nervous, right? Yeah, for sure. But but in your case, you made it work, and I'd be curious to know what your what your operating um, agreement was with the founder, a guy who's had his business for thirty years. It's very hard not to you know put your hands in all the operating elements. Um, yet for you to be successful, you sort of have to, you know, the buck has to stop with you. So how did you guys come up with a, a way to work together that allowed you the freedom to run the business and take it to the next level without him feeling cut off at the knees? Of course. Well, uh, you know, uh, this was the best of both worlds. doesn't always happen that way because obviously when I was first interviewing for the position, it was very important for me to know that I run the company, I'm the CEO, and the buck stops with me. And as a result, that, that, that has to be clear because if you have uh, unclear, you know, lack of clarity as to who's leading the show by the rest of the employees, uh, you know, looking like there's two chefs in the kitchen, you're not going to have a great meal. Um, and that we didn't want that to happen. So to begin with, uh, that was one of my conditions to come in was to make sure that not only I'm on the CEO on the board of the company, uh, we agree to uh, 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 certain uh, uh, objectives. Uh, I have certain uh, um, uh, leeway in uh, terms of decisions, what I can make as a decision, what I bring to the board. And then also the other thing, uh, I made sure that it would be more expensive to fire me in the first year than in the fifth year of being there. 
so that I had enough do that? time. You negotiate you... it in your contract. You basically say that uh, uh, I, I'm, you know, that uh, if 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 at the whim uh, of the board they decide they don't want you, not for cause, but if they don't want you, uh, that uh, if they do it in the first year, it's going to cost them a lot more in their severance agreement. If in the second year, a little bit less. In the third year, a lot less. And after that, it goes back to normal. So, so it's Isn't that important. funny? So it's, it's almost the opposite of what a traditional employment agreement would be, which is the longer tenure, the more severance. But in what you're describing it, is exactly it, the opposite. Correct, because I believe that would build trust, right, with the private equity guys. I said, look, in the, I, I need two years of runway to do what I need to do in order to take this company where it needs to go. But some of the decisions I'm, I'll make might have short-term negative impact. And then we need to get through them. And some of it will also bring some, uh, uh, some pain in some ways. So, uh, and, and the last thing that I want to be is part somewhere where I have to uh, uh, double check every decision all the time. So it was important for me to know that in the first 24 months, I can really implement uh, some very important strategies uh, that we need to really stick to. And then I also made sure that we put some incentive programs for the management that as these new strategies that uh, uh, we put in uh, came to fruition, they were handsomely rewarded with new options and also with cash bonuses so that they would be part of it. So there was an alignment in compensation. So, and, uh, so that was the basic thing. I said, look, after two years, if I'm not doing well, it should be easy for you to fire me. But if you don't understand exactly perhaps what I'm doing because you haven't done it before in the first 24 months. And that's not something that I am ready to take a risk on. So uh, that's fantastic. a commitment I need from you guys. And they gave me that commitment, that trust. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this phenomenon uh, of, of a CEO taking over a private equity backed founder led business, originally founder led because in essence, if you, I mean, if you peel back all the packaging and the layers and so forth, in essence, when you come in to take the business to the next level, almost by definition, whether articulated or not, you are taking policies, procedures, processes, decisions that the CEO made and making different decisions because you believe that they need to go to a different level. By, it, at some level, the CEO has to feel um like their decisions are being undermined or they're or second guessed or they're um they're not as smart as you if they were as smart as you they would have made the decision in the first place like did how did you did did the ceo or the sorry the, the founder feel did, did i mean i can't I guess you can't speak no, actually, for that, you know, you, in in you this know? case, the, the founder was great, and we uh, um, and I also uh, invited him into a very specific role. Uh, I needed a that? mentor to teach mm -hmm. me about this new area because up to two years ago, I didn't know what serialization was. So uh, this was a new area uh, uh, for me. I, I knew technology, I knew software, and I knew international business and all the industries we could go into with this particular solution. So. I asked him to be my mentor on always being there to be able to vet some of the uh, decision from a, uh, call it technical 
capabilities perspective, I, I often ask them to uh, meet with me most of the time outside of the office, having dinner, having lunch and so on. So these are some of the things we want to do. This is company you built up. I, I, I'd like to get your insight about, is there anything about this decision that uh, gives you pause? Are there any problems you see this could uh, this bring about and so on? And as a result, what happened, we started having these ongoing discussions and we met probably every two weeks, three weeks, we had dinner together, emptied a bottle of wine and talked about this thing. So, uh, uh, and there were some cases where I uh, said, be very careful. I know this area, these people, these are some of the landmines you might feel. And we built a trusted relationship that way. It was very clear that our uh, uh, benefits were intertwined, right? If I did well, he's gonna be a very, very wealthy man. And, uh, and at the same time, I'm going to have a success under my belt. Uh, with, with, with a nice little bonus on the side. So the, it, it was a win-win. The, uh, um, the, 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 one of the things that was a little bit difficult at first to do, because there had been multiple hires uh, over a period of three years, three, four years in, in senior management in different areas, in the service area, in the engineering area, in accounting and so on, a lot of new processes had been built on top of the other processes. And as a result, uh, decision making had really slowed down. So he was a company that was sub hundred million dollars, but had, in some cases took as long as a government uh, entity to make a decision. So one of the things that uh, um, really I started doing, this is how I got the internal uh, uh, talent pool to really be part of the, so I, I brought people in groups and in individuals, and I said, let's identify processes that don't make sense, that slow us down. And it's incredible. When that discussion started, everybody knew of at least three things that make absolutely no sense, but they were added somewhere along the way. Uh, give you an example. Uh, if an expense, that's the simplest one, but if an expense report was approved by a sales manager for direct sales representative reporting to that individual, uh, it needed to still have three other uh, um, approvals and then plus the CFO of the company. Uh, so which basically said, we don't trust our sales managers. Uh, so that wasn't one of the except something that slowed down. So one of the things that I changed, I said, no, the, the, the manager that approves an expense for his direct report has absolute right to do that. And we pay them immediately. No need to have another three, uh, permission. They need to have, uh, their decision-making, uh, absolute. But then what we introduced, we said, but we'll introduce a uh, random audit of, uh, of expense reports in the company. At any point in time, one will be picked up and looked at. And if the uh, 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 manager that approved it showed that they were either callous or uh, irresponsible, they'll be given one warning. If it happens again, then they won't be there anymore. So we accelerated decision-making, and that was one of the important things. And once you do that and you give people more trust, now all of a sudden the same employees that had been feeling someone undermined at the three, four years of change of management, they felt they were part of the decision-making going forward. And I think that's how uh, we got them to be more excited about the future of the company and help us uh, succeed as a result. I love, I, I love the specificity of, of the expense report example because it brings it to, uh, to, to life for me as to what you know, the level of, of uh, bureaucracy that you encountered and, and, and the sort of fast decision-making that you, you went to. Uh, let's go to the positioning the business for an acquirer because um, I'd love to 
I mean, you've gone through the M&A space businesses you've run in the past, so you, you've definitely thought this through. It was one of the reasons you were brought in is your expert experience with M&A. Describe, if you could, what you did to position SysTech to be acquired. The first thing was uh, um, reviewing the uh, brand position of the company. What, what kind of company are we? What business are we in? And up to that point, uh, when you went to any document or the website of Systech or yes, anybody say, we are the best serialization company in the world. We are the pioneer in serialization. That's the way it positioned itself. The issue was that including myself coming in and, and 99% of the world doesn't know what that means. So the, the, the first exercise was that let's figure out what do we really do? What is it that if we were talking to uh, uh, my kid or if we were talking to uh, uh, my wife or if we're talking to uh, the, uh, um, the grocer that I go to and they asked us what we do and we said that they wouldn't understand. So what is it we do? Let's break it down. And we spent the first two months really just doing a lot of uh, focus groups within the company and then brought some customers and so on. And we found out, well, what we really do is that we help make product. What we do is that we help products uh, of our customers uh, be uh, authentic always, make sure that they're authentic. We make sure that they are connected and we should make sure that they're safe, right? That's our three things. So we said, well, so. We came up with this acronym, ASK, and we said, well, basically, we're technology that makes sure that your products are always authentic, safe, and connected as they travel the supply chain so that when your customers eventually get the product, they don't have to worry. And uh, so, so we changed the position of the company, and we said, we're in the business of giving you safe, connected, and authentic products. And because there's so much risk for a company, whether it's a pharma company, whether it's a, uh, a spirits and wine company, or whether it's a vaping company, there's so much risk that that product, either something went wrong with it, or it was sold to the wrong people, as in the case of vaping to minors, or there was an infiltration of a fake product in the supply chain, they all understood. So now we had a new brand proposition. So that was point number one. We changed our brand proposition, on our value, statement and we change that in all our media we change our brochures our business cards we created some uh, a little metallic uh, uh, um, um, coin that we would take with us uh, around we did our website everything said that so that was point number one Fantastic. point number two once we had done that we said okay now let's identify what other industries with our solution really be helpful. So we look to say, what are industries that potentially are threatened, their supply chain gets threatened, either by bandits who divert it or by counterfeits who counterfeit the product and push it into it. So we looked at that. Uh, well, we said, well, we came up with food and beverage. We came up with uh, um, uh, uh, spirit, wine and spirits. We came up with tobacco and vaping, the new vaping industry as it was transitioning, we came up with things you put on your face, so cosmetics. We said cosmetics can, wrong cosmetics can hurt a person's skin. Uh, personal care shampoos, there had been people who'd been uh, burnt by uh, counterfeit shampoo in a number of countries. So we looked at those things and we said, okay, let's now turn our value statement into, uh, for each of these industries, what does it mean? 
So we, we said, what is uh, authentic, safe, and connected for a, um, a cosmetic company? What is it for a uh, wine and spirit company? And so on. now we have that. And based on that, we decided that these were the places that we should create partnerships and alliances. So we, um, we went and looked for partnership and alliances with those who were fulfilling a product in those spaces. So one of them, for instance, which eventually became our acquirer, Dover, owned a company called Markham Image. And Markham Image uh, are a, a speed printing uh, uh, company, about $1.2 billion company that, when, if you've ever picked up a can of Coke and you looked at the little things that are printing on, printed on the can of Coke, their equipment printed that. So hmm. if they're printing uh, on a can of Coke, uh, there would be a natural part and say that, hey, if we can also add some technology to your printing, so when you print it, not only it says which can of Coke it is, we put a unique number, we can track and traces, and we put a, uh, an anti-counterfeit um, solution on it as well. And all that happens while you're printing on the packaging line. Or we put a camera, a CPU, and while you're printing, we also pick up that information. Now, you can go to Coke and say, hey, not only we count your product and we print them so that we're printing all the numbers and actually also the face of that can, we also make sure that uh, when that product leaves, it's authentic, it's connected, and it's safe. So, so that was one example. So we did that in different, we looked at different type of companies like uh, Dover and Marketing Marge in different areas, and we said those would be good partners because if we can have a successful partnership with them, they would eventually be a good place for us to exit. So, Fantastic. Um, so, so step one yeah. was positioning. Step yeah. two was looking in, in, into new industries. And distribution where we, be, we could become part of their existing mm -hmm. solution. So if you're already uh, uh, printing all the information on, let's say, a uh, Maybelline uh, mascara product, uh, um, and now, but you also have issues where they, they, they divert them in the supply chain or they get counterfeited. Now, if you can take those two problems away, that company can tell its customers, say, hey, look, now we can also help you with that. So now we became a partner of that customer. So rather than us finding customers directly only, we said, let us become an important part of somebody else's solution, make it stronger. So they have now a new value proposition that allows them to ask for more money uh, or get more uh, uh, scale and distribution. That was the idea. So basically, how do you sell your product through the effort of others? That was point number two. Um, and uh, my, you know, for a long time, my, my approach to uh, exits is that an exit of a company is not selling your company for a certain amount of money. The exit of the company is having convinced a partner that you are so wonderful they should marry you. <laughs> and by marrying you, they're gonna be happier, they're gonna be richer, they're gonna have more kids, and they'll have better vacations, and all these things will be better. So it's a natural process, and that, customer, that partner said, darn, you know what? I love dating you, and once in a while going out to dinner is great, that's all that. But I really want you to myself, and that's what you make happen. Once you can make that happen, then the issue is like, okay, what's the dowry? Um, and you know, that's, a, that's basically my, my, my simple way of approaching any exits. Uh, doesn't matter whether it's a 
five percent, uh, five people company, a hundred people or two thousand people company, that fundamental doesn't change. An, an exit and a sale company is typically not a financial transaction. The financial transaction is the outcome of a marriage. Well said indeed. So part of what you were doing in step two of your process, uh, looking at other industries, distribution channels, partnerships that you could forge, it was a bit of a Trojan horse in the sense that you knew if you could create a very strong alliance that that wouldn't, in addition, be the ideal acquirer. Absolutely. What, what we did, we actually went after competing companies and uh, to some degree. So we said, look, that we, we, we are in pharmaceutical and, and we can be very attractive to anyone who wants to do more business in pharmaceutical because we're, we got a, a track record of 30 years of having secured billions of dollars, actually it was trillions of dollars of, uh, of prescription drugs for at least the top 20 uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world. And in probably what is the most uh, uh, safe, dangerous environment, because something goes wrong with your medicine, it's, it's life or death often. So if we could secure a pharmaceutical drug to help bring more safety to a patient and a consumer of those uh, medicines and drugs, we certainly are good enough to be able to secure your can of Coke or your uh, makeup or your shampoo or your wine. Uh, and that was so we, with that, we said, okay, so we've identified the places where we should also be securing. And we said, rather than go direct to it, which would take us too long. I'll be retired and probably my white hair would have turned to a, a bald head by then. So that would be too, too late. Uh, so, so we said, no, we got to do it through an effort of others. So we, we looked at companies like Dover and Markham. Um, Dover is the owner company, but Markham Image. And, uh, and, and we said, let's have multiple partnerships uh, in those different areas and see who wants to partner with us. So to some degree, uh, just the, we, we went a little bit into speed dating, right, if you could think. We, we went to a lot of companies that were very similar, that we felt had a product that was similar, and, and to see which one would see ours as the, the sexiest. And, 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 and that's how we, and are, we went about it. And are we, you, would you have been satisfied had you just forged a simple partnership, or were all the speed dating that you were doing availed you know, acquisition conversation, like no, we, zero, we getting it? Zero, yeah, zero acquisition conversations. The only thing that we went into, uh, um, once we identified the companies that would be potential distributors, we did a lot of work on the front end ourselves and we created uh, a We went to the marketplace and we took products, uh, we bought products of their customers. And then we took these products back and we secured them through our technology. And then we found a way, sometimes direct, sometimes through one degree of separation, to get to the right individual in those companies. Say, let us show what we've done to some products that you've actually packaged in the marketplace and see whether you have interest. So, so that was the first part. And, and once we got them, once they said, wow, we can't do that today. So all of a sudden, imagine if you had the, if it was that can of Coke or that uh, makeup, uh, in the past, they would just print it and it would go there and that was it. They didn't know what was happening to it until they heard, oh, 
we have a, a counterfeiting in I don't know what market. Now, all of a sudden, we say not only you could do that, you know where it is, you can track and trace it anywhere, and your consumers and your distributors, just with a, with a, a smartphone, can now scan that product, and the, and the phone will tell them whether they have a, a fake or a, a real product in their hand. If there's a fake one, they immediately report it back to the supply chain, and now based on also some of the intricacies of technologies, we can tell what other ones are likely to be faked also. Uh, in, within the geographical area. So you, now that you had that solution thing and you excited someone and then say, we'd love to partner with you. So we had to do a lot of work on the front end. And once they got excited, then we said, can we build, to, our goal is to build uh, together with you a go-to-market plan, whereby if we did all the work to integrate our technology into your existing solution, where do you think you could take it into your customer base and your region? So and with some of the customers, we have this partner potential. Uh, they didn't want to do that hard work up front. And so we said, we don't want to have just a partnership on paper. Should we step away? A few of them were ready to do that work up front. Some of them more on regional basis or diverse vertical basis. Uh, the one that eventually acquired us actually rapidly saw the benefit that, that they should do that globally. And uh, so we became a global partner. Uh, and, and then that, was, that took us a year to accomplish. And a bit, maybe eight, nine months later, uh, I had a dinner with the CEO of the partner company. Uh, he knew that uh, we were in the market raising some additional uh, capital for some of our growth initiatives. And, uh, and he said, would you guys consider uh, an investment from us? Uh, as a minority partner to help you help take you to your uh, next destination and we said yes and well, let's talk and that led to eventually a full-on acquisition so again it, it's it wasn't the financial discussion it was getting the businesses to work well together really really fascinating and 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 uh, an incredible sort of insight what was the trigger that caused the conversation to turn from uh Mark Mimaj investing a minority stake in your company to outright acquisition. It, it was um, it, it arrived by uh, uh, one of the well, a, a smart um, uh, acquirer typically uh, um, will try to understand how will your solution scale inside of theirs and what kind of potential. Uh, um, positive that would bring to their business in two areas. One of them, point of differentiation in the marketplace, and the second one in new avenues of growth. Um, when we uh, completed the uh, um, our end of the of the analysis of in which of their uh, customer type products or our, our system would work best because it doesn't necessarily work with every single product the best right there. You have to pick the ones where you're the, uh, the, it would be best. It became clear that this could uh, have a significant uh, um, advantage for them versus their competition to demonstrate to the Wall Street, to the marketplace, that they are innovating the way in which product printing and, uh, uh, and authenticity is delivered. So that was one thing. And then the second thing was the dollar amounts potentially that that could bring in 
when you go to all of their customers and if a fraction of them over a period of five years start adding this capability, what would be that revenue? So that it was the, the denouement of those two realities that uh, um, allowed the CEO of, uh, of the acquiring company to think rather than just invest, since it's such a great, we believe in this technology so much, why not own? Um, how did and, uh, yeah. and how did you maintain negotiating leverage? Because to use your dating analogy, it sounds like you were, you, you know, you were engaged uh, to Dover. You, you were really quite deeply integrated together, uh, which feels really good from, uh, you know, turning a, a hot and heavy romance and engagement to marriage. That feels easy to transition. At the same time, they would have had tremendous leverage over you had you not had another acquirer at the ready. So how did Absolutely. you maintain some negotiating that, leverage? That's, that, that's a, a superb question, uh, John. And um, so um, in our case, uh, um, in order not to have a situation where we only have one partner that potentially uh, is, is an avenue, uh, I had also uh, gone and hired an investment bank at the same time as advisors. Uh, there's a, a, a superb boutique form, firm in uh, San Francisco called Atlas, and I called their CEO, and uh, his name is Tony Trousset, and asked, uh, actually, first we, we had them in a competitive bid, so our board would also approve it, asked uh, them to become our, our advisors. So um, we were in parallel because we weren't, we, we, I didn't have to sell the company. I had to bring new liquidity in the company first. That was my first goal because we're two years into, not even two years into a five-year uh, project, right? Um, so the first was to bring more liquidity uh, into the company. And so uh, the investment bank was talking to different sources in private equity and uh, large VCs and others and family offices that would have been good sources for that minority investment for us to invest in growth. So we had that option on the table. Uh, it was always there. And uh, unless somebody was going to really uh, um, make it worthwhile for investors to want to exit earlier, our option was to just raise money and use that money for growth uh, because we didn't have to sell the company for another three to five years. And we we're at that time, maybe 13 months into, into my tenure. So, so that, that was the first thing. And then once it became more engaged where the actual uh, a partner seriously stopped, started talking about wanting uh, to own and acquire, uh, uh, I stepped out of the negotiation and uh, Atlas, our uh, investment banker, led the negotiation. And uh, that uh, all of a sudden takes all the emotions uh, out of the discussions and it becomes an objective discussion. But at the same time, uh, if, if you as a principal working with your partner, let's say we want to buy you and they give you a number, you say, well, no, I've got another five places I can go to. Uh, uh, you create, some, you know, it's not a nice thing to hear from your partner. So it's better not to put your, you're there to operate together as partner. But when the investment banker on one-on-one -on -one with the uh, uh, corp development of the other side in a conversation could say, look, I, I hear you, 
But my client, you know, has so many more options through our channels that unless it's really something that makes sense to the shareholder, it'd be difficult to advise them to do what they want to do in five years to do in three years. And, and so those two things uh, were, were the way in which we made sure that uh, don't have to get into the entanglement of negotiation and, and leverage issues. Fantastic. Sort of creating a buffer between you and, and plausible deniability. <laughs> you know, the, the yeah, third party. It, yeah. it just makes sense because, you know, in the meantime, we, we were just having such a positive uh, uh, partnership that you, you don't want to have one part, the most important part of your partnership, which is the operation, suffer because now you're starting to talk money, right? So uh, the CEO of the acquiring company and I agreed together, say, hey, let's just decide to build this business together and let's put our, your investment banker and our corporate development guys to talk together. If they decide that it makes sense, they'll come to sense. In the meantime, we got to build the business. That's what we do. We're not here to sell a business, we're to build it. And how did you guys think about valuation? I mean, you had such a unique product. I'm, I'm trying to, are there standard multiples of a company like yours? Or like, how did think, you, you know, think it's, about valuation? It's complicated. You know, I can, um, and because I'm under NDA, there's, I, 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 there's many things I can't get into, but I can provide you the following uh, input I think will help different parts of your business create different kind of revenue and each of that re each revenue category has a different valuation so now i can't give you the exact percentage of what we had where because i'm not supposed to uh, uh, share publicly the financial details of our transaction uh, um, but uh, i'll give you an example um, in in our business some of our uh, revenue was pure service. Some of our revenue was pure SaaS, so software as a service. Some of it was license, which is licensed software. Uh, uh, some of it was on-premise versus some of it was in the cloud. Some of it was maintenance revenue that came from the software that was licensed. And some of it was from equipment. By equipment could be one of those third-party cameras that mm -hmm. we would just infuse with Systec brains and then add a CPU around it and put it on an assembly line. So all these different things. So if you look at, uh, let's go to the two extremes. Typically your uh, um, uh, hardware uh, revenue uh, is not worth a lot. Um, so, you know, in, in our case, our hardware revenue could probably be, was probably worth somewhere around one, one times revenue. Not, not a lot more than that, maybe a little bit more, but in generally. But our SaaS revenue uh, that we had, that SaaS revenue, you could argue that it would be worth seven times revenue if you did it on revenue basis and not the EBITDA. Um, and then, then you say, well, what if the consulting revenue, the service revenue is in between? And that, that depends, right? You've got different kinds of consulting you do. Some of it is just implementation, so that's lower level probably somewhere around one and a half times revenue. Some of the uh, consulting you may do is extremely expert-based and as a result has very high margins that can be up to two and a half, even sometimes three times, right? It can, that can happen, but probably more like two, two and a half on the service side. And then finally, your uh, um, uh, um, license revenue, where if you look at it in the marketplace, license revenue, depending on the business, depending on 
your financials can be as low as one and a half times and as high as three and a half times. What's so the difference between, at, what's the difference, sorry uh, to interrupt, yeah. Laura, but I'd be curious to know what the difference between license revenue and SaaS revenue is. Absolutely. Um, um, SaaS revenue is basically a recurring license. It's almost like a rental that you charge, right? So let's say if I, you say, or I want to use your technology, and I say, okay, it's going to cost you $100,000 a year, and you keep on getting the latest and the best of my software. And if one day you decide you don't want to use it, and I switch you off because I'm offering you a SaaS software through my cloud facility. So I host it for you, and you pay a little bit like with Amazon. You pay to be on uh, AWS. You pay for being and be on, on my cloud and using the capabilities of this software. So that's the SaaS piece. If, if I have licensed you the software, basically that means that you've bought the software from me and, and you're paying me a maintenance to maintain the software. So that means that once you buy it, uh, you don't pay every year for it. You've already paid for it. The only thing you pay annually is a little maintenance, usually 15 to 20%, depending on the kind of agreement you have. So hence the difference. And this is why SaaS-based software revenue is tremendously most, more uh, valuable than uh, license-based and maintenance-based. And, and, the, uh, and the reason is every year you have to resell your license business. You start at zero, right? So if you sold 10 customers a million dollars in 2020, you made uh, uh, $20 million. Uh, if you did that in, in SaaS, let's say it was, but you did half the price, you did $10 million. When you start 2021, with, uh, in your license business, you start at zero, whereas in your SaaS business, you start at 10. So as you could see, there's a snowballing effect on your SaaS revenue, uh, which is annual recurring revenue. And that part of your business, that rate, that's the most valuable part. And that's why many businesses that have been licensed and maintenance software businesses are in the process, some of them are complete, and many of them in the process of converting their business to SaaS. It's not that easy to do, but it's doable. That makes sense. So in Systex example, while we can't get into the specific details, you know that behind the scenes, the M&A guys were, were pulling apart, teasing apart the different revenue streams and saying, okay, you have this kind of revenue is worth X and this kind of revenue is worth Y. Absolutely. And, and you know, just I can give you this one, one, one item, which is not uh, confidential, but traditionally in the Systex world, the um, pharmaceutical companies expected all the software to be on-premise and they would own it and pay a maintenance. That's, that was the model. Uh, as the company, as we, we managed to bring the company more into the, this new uh, um, era of authentic, safe, and connected, which was a cloud product now for anti-counterfeiting, uh, uh, that became uh, the, and the, and the track and trace, that became the SaaS portion of it. So, um, uh, increasingly, the company was going towards a SaaS model. So also the projection into the future of the company's valuation, what it would have been in the future, assuming it continued, uh, expanded its SaaS revenue, made it more uh, valuable. So from an acquire perspective, in some way, when you see that transition is happening and it's happening successfully, if you can buy at the mezzanine level uh, and the seller uh, is happy with their deal, 
you have a lot of potential upside on that business. So uh, the key thing is to find the, there's always the right number, right? Between the, the, the buyer and seller. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Just listening to you, it's, it's like, uh, it's like a symphony of, of intelligence. I listen to what you're saying and I understand it. It makes sense to me and it is so thought provoking and I've just enjoyed this conversation enormously. How did you, how did you learn what you've learned? I mean, are you a reader? Are you a, a hyper-educated guy? Like, how did you become so knowledgeable about business? Give us the, you know, give us our marching orders here. If we're going to try to be like Aura, what, what's your media consumption? How did you become as, as, uh, as thoughtful about business as you are? Uh, it's what I don't know that that's more important, right? And I think the uh, uh, one one of the elements uh, is to continually wanting to learn, and uh, and and you know we learn for so many. I'm, you know, I, I'm not a highly educated person. I think I'm the only person at City University that uh, now is uh, uh, has a uh, professor status without uh, uh, having a master's. Um, so it's not based on the education. I think it's based on, on uh, having the, the right people, the right teams around you, working together as, as one team and learning from each other. That, that's probably where uh, most of the opportunities come and the rest through you know, experience. The only thing with experience, the world is changing so rapidly that I think that uh, um, some total of experience gets possibly less valuable as we go in time. So some of hmm. the fundamentals remain, but that experience is less. So it's the, it's the ability to always want to learn. And, uh, and when you're, you know, I love Richard Branson. Uh, I've seen a post where it says that uh, when he, he, a couple of times he got his first opportunity at something and he had no idea what it was. And his advice is uh, take it and figure it out later. And I think that's it. It's, it's about wanting to learn. Um, if you want to learn and if you keep on questioning your own assumptions, uh, uh, you'll evolve in your thinking and hopefully you'll generate more knowledge that you could share with others. Uh, if you remain too uh, uh, close to your conviction and your uh, assumptions, I'm not talking about ethics and morality, those you have to, and I'm talking about general knowledge issues around the, anything from business to politics to environment to literature. If you, if you don't have that mind open, then it's very difficult to, uh, to keep on learning. So uh, I think if the humans are, are a learning animal, but we often let the uh, opinions and ideology get in the way, uh, and then our assumptions aren't uh, continually uh, questioned and revalidated, I think. So hope, hopefully I could do that. Uh, uh, for forever and, and learn forever. Well, I, I, I'm generous for you sharing with us today, or I, I'm grateful, I should say, for the generosity you've shown me and us today. So I, I'm grateful for that. Yes, thank or you if, for, for speaking with me. Yeah, or if people wanted to, to reach out, is there, uh, is there a way for them to get connected to you? Are you a social media guy? Is there, what's the best yeah, way? I'm, is I'm there a website you want to point people to? I don't have a website. No, I'm uh, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Obviously, uh, that's probably uh, you know I'm I'm pretty active. I, I don't post all the time, but uh, I'm I'm daily reading and uh, hearing of other people's 
uh, ideas. And occasionally, if I have one, I'll post it. But I do check it all the time. So, you know, I'm, LinkedIn is the LinkedIn. best. Yeah, it's the awesome. best. Yeah. And we'll put uh, the spelling of your name, uh, which is somewhat unique, uh, at least to my eye, uh, in the show notes, and uh, so people can can match you up on LinkedIn. Uh, it's so it's such a pleasure to meet you and uh, continued success. Thanks for doing this. Great. Thank you, John. And uh, continued success to you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.